Hey, everyone. My new book, Beautiful Writers, A Journey of Big Dreams and Messy Manuscripts with Tricks of the Trade from Bestselling Authors, is ready for pre-order. Those authors are the legends you hear here on this very show. Beautiful Writers pubs on August 23rd. And if you purchase the book now and plug in your order number over on bookmama.com, you will receive lots of really cool writerly pre-order bonuses to help you birth your own book baby. I even send you personalized book plates to include in your books for holiday gifts with five or more orders. I mean, how much easier is that than trying to re-gift used candles? I love when wins. And now for the show. was a moment for me with Saba. Something she said that unlocked the beast was, it was at the end of a call, it was almost a two hour call. She's like, told me, and I was like, yeah. And she goes, make them pay. <gasps> and I was like, oh. I remember viscerally as women, as marginal, you're always like, I'm just lucky to breathe this air. But no, I don't think I'm lucky to make you a lot of money. You can't create something like Beyonce if you're not willing to roar when you need to roar. You have to be ferocious and you have to believe that all of it is yours and that you're worthy of it. I think it's something you see a lot in immigrant communities. At least I know in my immigrant community, the feeling of, I don't deserve it. And if I get it, it's because of the will of God, which I'm not arguing with, you know, Um, but I do feel that's a lesson I had to learn over time. And actually, both my two older brothers and then also my husband were all kind of like, well, why wouldn't you get? They're men of color, so they've dealt with their own situations and issues and being marginalized. But they were just like, how could you not expect to produce something that you tore out of the bedrock of your soul and put into the world. And why wouldn't you get paid well for that? Can you tell these young women have a lot to teach us about worth? Wait until you hear what else they have to say. My God, out of the mouths of babes. And be forewarned, there are some swear words flying around. From the old gal, too. I'm Linda Sievertson. And today, our guests are two of the most successful YA fantasy authors ever. You just heard Nigerian-American novelist and creative writing coach, Tomi Ediyemi, author of Children of Blood and Bone and Children of Virtue and Vengeance. She was with her dear friend, Pakistani-American novelist and mother of two, Seba Tahir, who is the author of An Ember in the Ashes series. YA, by the way, stands for young adult, And these women who started writing when they were super young are so wise and savvy with their number one New York Times bestsellers and monster advances and major movie deals that they've been compared to J.K. Rowling and Suzanne Collins of Harry Potter and Hunger Games fame. Where did they get their early confidence? Seba admits that it wasn't easy. And Tomi, who was just named one of Time Magazine's most influential people of 2020, explains more of how she works at it every single day. And while I'm on the topic of Time Magazine, they just updated their Time 100 Best Fantasy Novels of All Time list. And these titles go back as far as the 9th 
century with the Arabian Nights. Both Tommy and Seba have multiple books appearing on this list, you guys, alongside classics like Alice's Adventures in Wonderland or Mary Poppins, The Fellowship of the Ring, A Wrinkle in Time, and several of the Harry Potters. That's big stuff, right? In keeping with my literary matchmaking goal for this show, these two are slightly obsessed with each other. There's even a history of some stalking involved, which we'll also get to. Tommy and Seba's books introduced black and brown kids and teens to heroic characters who look like them long before the movie Black Panther was a thing. Seba got the idea for her series while working as a copy editor on the Washington Post's International Desk, where she was inundated with stories of war and famine and forced labor and incarceration of people around the world. I hope this will make up for the fact that I have not yet released my annual summer best of episode. I was about halfway through putting that together for you when I interviewed Tommy and Seba and I was so inspired that I just had to switch gears but that show will be done soon. So to set the stage for their storylines a bit before we get started, here's a teaser from An Ember in the Ashes. Laia is a slave. Elias is a soldier. Neither is free. Under the Martial Empire, defiance is met with death. Those who do not vow their blood and bodies to the emperor risk the execution of their loved ones and the destruction of all they hold dear. In Children of Blood and Bone, the soil of Verisha hums with magic, but everything changes. The night magic disappears under the orders of a ruthless king. They killed my mother. They took our magic. They tried to bury us. Now we rise. I'm so happy you're here. I'm so happy they're here. Welcome. Happy to hear your voice. Oh my gosh, you too. I love you already. Oh, we've been really excited. Thank you for having us. You two are so in demand. I am elated that you are here. And hello, we've got a lot to cover. Specifically, let's start with epic hero worship. Tell me, I have heard you say that you were gently stalking Seba early on and that Children of Blood and Bone was inspired by Seba's Ember in the Ashes. So, my burning question is. What did that stalking look like exactly? Yes, I'm, <laughs> I always instruct my students that you should gently stalk the people you admire. Um, and I define gently stalking as I'm going to learn everything I can without you, but not with the intent of being creepy or causing harm. <laughs> um, and just with the intent of learning. I know it's got to be the same for you, Seba, where it's I get so many DMs and so many emails that are like, oh, can you mentor me? Can you mentor me? Can you mentor me? And I'm like, we have the internet, which means you can literally turn anyone into a mentor, but you have to do the work. If someone has a masterclass or someone literally has a Skillshare too, let's pretend it's not about Subba, but <laughs> you're on masterclass.com. You have some creator that you admire, some business person, and they give you their syllabus. They give you their rule book. It's really laid out. With the internet, you have the same thing. It's just not collected in one place. When I read An Ember in the Ashes and I have this incredible experience, it's like, okay, 
This is now a textbook for me. This is something I am going to study until I understand not just why it made me feel that way, but how it made me feel. I asked how it was created, what inspired this author. And then it's like, oh, wow, this author got this amazing book deal and she got this option. That's my dream. Let me look more into that. If someone feels confused, I usually just ask them, who are you jealous of? Because I think Ah! jealousy is (laughs) your best compass. Most people are like, oh, I don't know. Okay, well, who are you like? Ah, I wish that was mine because that means they're doing something you want to do. And then you can study them. I just watched Jojo Rabbit last night and saw my YouTube queue because I really loved it and I loved everything about it. And I'm so curious about how it was created. So now my YouTube queue has like 10 Jojo Rabbit videos and some are interviews. One is Heike breaking down a scene in Vanity Fair. Another is video essays. People do all the things for you. (laughs) So just learn from it, figure out what works for you. And then it's like adding a tool to your toolbox. Remember in the ashes taught me you could have an epic fantasy and also have it comment on something that was happening in our present day. And you Mm -hmm. could also weave your culture beautifully. I didn't know a story like an ember in the ashes could exist until Seba created it. And Mm -hmm. so once I knew that she became my mentor and that was long before I ever talked to her. People should do that work more. Don't think you need to DM Seba or me (laughs) to understand (laughs) how we're working, especially when all I talk about is how much I love Seba. It's like, <laughs> it's out there. It's on the internet. So just a couple Google searches and intentional mindset can help you get that masterclass.com lesson. Oh, I love it. Seba, where are you jealous of Tomi? One of the things that I love the most about Tomi is how comfortable she is in her skin and in her work. She's such a confident writer. And I think that's such a beautiful thing and so rare and so difficult to find. And I also love how she can turn the things that she learns into help for others. I was not nearly as put together when I was gently stalking. It was more like (laughs) I met Lainey Taylor, who was one of my heroes at Comic-Con and blabbed to her endlessly and then was really embarrassed. (laughs) You know, it's like, that's that's my version of gently stalking, but it was not nearly as put together. But I think that we sort of, look at jealousy negatively and I try to sort of flip the word jealousy into something else. And I think it's actually from my culture. So there's this concept of nazar in the Muslim religion and Pakistani culture, which is the evil eye. Oh, right. And when you are actively jealous of someone who you care about, who you love, you can accidentally put the evil eye on them. So I try not to think about it because I don't want to put that on anyone. I don't want to put the evil eye on anyone. You'll see a lot of Pakistanis talking about it on Twitter. I don't know if you've ever read about Mujahid Ali, who's a pretty well-known Muslim commentator and humorist, but he's talked about Nazar on his Twitter and how he thinks Nazar is something that can be put on you even by someone who is not Pakistani. So yeah. I feel this weird burden if I'm jealous of someone, even if it's someone I don't like. I don't want to curse them. <laughs> I really try to like flip it and be like, maybe this person has something that I like. My mother really taught me that. When I was first starting out in this industry, 
and I was complaining to her and I don't even remember what it was, but I was like, I just feel like I'm never going to get there and I'm never going to get my book published. And she was like, yes. you know, eyes on the road ahead of you. If you look mm. at other people, one, you're going to nuzzle them and that's really bad. No. <laughs> she was like, don't do it. <laughs> and she was also like, don't nuzzle yourself. I mean, every time I give a compliment to my children, I follow it up with like, but it's sad that you smell because you're a little boy. You know, or like, I don't want to put the evil eye on them. Oh my God. They're very used to it though. So they'll give me a compliment and they'll be like, oh my God, mama, you look so pretty, but your shoes are ugly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like our family tradition now. I remember I went to three book signings of Elizabeth Gilbert's in a row. And I felt like, oh my God, she's going to think I'm a total crazy stalker person. And by the third one, she's like, hey, I recognize you. (laughs) I literally said to her, I'm not a stalker. I've never done this before. I've never had posters on my wall. It was embarrassing, but I really tried not to be jealous. I tried to learn from her. I just thought I aspire to be like her. I don't ever expect to be that good, but I'm going to die trying. Honestly, to even hearing us all speak about it, I think the difference is once you believe you are capable, you are no longer jealous. Yeah. And that's something true. I saw the writer I was before reading An Ember in the Ashes was someone who didn't believe that it was still this kind of dirty secret. And <laughs> when I had started reading An Ember in the Ashes, I was at a place I'd already tried and technically failed, but I'd gotten close enough to feel confident in the fact of, oh, okay, you can do this thing. It's not impossible. You just need to get better at it. Didn't you have like 63 rejections on your first book? I remember hearing you say you worked on this thing for four years, 6 p.m. to midnight the whole last year, and then it was rejected. Was it after that that Seba became the object of your fixation? Yes. And that's when I'd also learn, because the other thing is whenever you're trying something, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, And the other thing with books is prior to social media and really prior to like Stephanie Meyer in Twilight, the image of the author was, oh, you sit in your ivory castle, (laughs) you do a spell, this masterpiece comes down and then (laughs) you share it with the math. I didn't know that people revised. And so when you have the text and you wrote it and you're like, this is shit. And then you read your favorite book and you're like, this is great. Clearly I'm not cut out for it. You don't know that, oh no, that actually used to be really bad too. And she just kept making it a little bit better every time. Tommy, if you could see those first drafts, I think if if like young Tommy had seen my first draft, she would have laughed and been like... (laughs) Well, you didn't know about... Somebody doesn't know what she's doing. (laughs) You didn't know about the Anne Lamott shitty first drafts idea. Yeah, I know. That everybody writes shitty first drafts. If it's bad, that means you're right. Because very few people write good first drafts. Right. Those people are so few and far between that they don't matter. So it's less like, oh, assume it's bad and that you Tell can make me, it better. Tommy, have you ever read the draft section of the Writer's Home Companion? There's a whole section about how Elizabeth Bishop rewrote one art over and over and over again. Mm. It actually goes through all those drafts. It's amazing. I remember reading it. My brother got me that book when I was 13 and it was life altering. I really think it kind of put me on this trajectory because it is this entire chapter that's just about her many, many drafts of this beautiful poem. It's one of my favorite poems and how 
bad some of the early drafts were. <laughs> and you read them and you're like, wait, but she made this publishable. And it's also something I saw in the news a lot. We had reporters at the Washington Post who were Pulitzer Prize winning reporters. And I would have seen their first drafts. And it was so enlightening to know that these people who were considered the top of their game would sometimes turn in garbage, right? Oh, and then they would yes. they would get it to where it needed to be over the course of days or weeks. What a wonderful thing. What Kind of what a reprieve, you know? Yes. <laughs> yes. For our souls to know that it's possible. And I wish more young writers knew that that is the process. That's the real process. That it's yes. not just that you come up with these magical things, that it really is iteration. Saba. I've heard you say, if you're sucking, you're doing it right. You had six years of quote unquote bad drafts, right? Yes, a long time. I did. I think that if you walk into writing a book and you think you know what you're doing, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure a little bit. To me, every book is a new mountain. I know nothing about mountains. I just want to put that out there. I'm not a mountain climber. I'm weirdly, I'm like, I'm weirdly obsessed with mountain climbing documentaries and novels and like anything about mountain climbing, I'm on it, right? So I feel like the one thing I've learned in all this obsessive mountain climbing reading is you can know how generally to climb a mountain, but every mountain is different and you're going to face different problems on each one. For sure. And if you get to the top, it's going to be because you managed to adapt and evolve to that particular mountain. And I think books are very similar. You have to evolve and adapt to the book that you're writing. So if you go in being like, eh, I got this, there might be a flatness to what you're writing because you're not pushing yourself, right? You're not pushing yourself to do something different, to do something better, to try harder, to solve a problem in a different way, to approach a plot issue in a different way, to approach yourself in a different way. Because we're all writers. How much of it is digging into ourselves and into those darker places in ourselves and excavating that? Yeah. And there I think if you walk different. in being like, yeah, yes, exactly. Like the subber who wrote book one or who wrote in Ember, these books take such a long time and you experience life in new ways. And so even if someone was like, oh, can't you just do that thing? And I was like, the 23-year-old girl who wrote that, I don't know her. I was like, yeah. that's like an ex. <laughs> it's yeah, not the same because we're different. We think differently, same heart, but everything else is different because so much has happened that it would be impossible yeah. to stay the same. Oh, that's so true. Tell me, I love how you wrote for such a long time and got rejected. I think this is important for our listeners. I always say that there is no wasted writing. It's all practice. It's all grist for the mill. But I heard you talking somewhere about how you don't know when opportunities are going to come. Yes. But it's up to you to be ready. And that kind of practice, even if it doesn't go anywhere, is part of what makes you ready. Yes. Honestly, it's always weird talking about yourself. And you're like, well, I believed in myself. (laughs) Opportunity came. I was right. So I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Instead, I'm going to talk about this amazing artist I met during book two in Atlanta, I believe, or in DC, I think it was DC. So we were in a book event for book two and she came up and she had drawn this beautiful illustration of one of the settings from my book. Are you talking about virtue? Oh yeah, we're talking about virtue and And she had drawn candomblé and it it was perfect. I was like, this is my imagination. It was like the perfect mix of 
my inspirations and everything. And I was like, you killed this. And she goes, ah, I'm a concept artist. I love your world so much. It's my dream to work on this. I was like, okay, let's make that happen. You have it. You have it. Yeah. When I reconnected with her about four months later, she's been bringing my entire story world to life purely out of passion and out of an intense desire to be able to do that in a professional capacity. So then when I'm in a place of cool, we're actually moving forward. So I'm going to email you to connect you to this Lucasfilms person and let's share your artwork. Let's do this so you can get connected with the team. It's like she's already created 75% of my world. And because of that, when I get a chance to be like, hey, this is someone whose work I want you to look at, she gets it. And she's really passionate about this. And she wants to be on your team. You know, people tell me all the time, I'd love to do costumes for your movie. I'd love to do hair for your movie. I'd love to do set for your movie. This is the person who did it. She did it. She said, I would love to do it. And I love to so much. I'm going to do it. Well, as you say, she was in control of making her own magic. Exactly. And that's what I've learned about life. The world is a horrible place, but it's always been a horrible place. That's (laughs) not unique to us. We haven't necessarily been worse at it. It used to be more... (laughs) acceptable to eat people. So we're a little bit ahead. Right. (laughs) In life, you have to make your own magic. My little fan name is the Tominators. And to me, that's what I define as a Tominator. Someone who's like, I want this. I want this so much. I love this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Because to do that means you believe in yourself. And that's also going from the place of jealousy to learning. Because if you believe in yourself, You're not being like, oh, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? You're just spending your time doing the actual work Mm -hmm. that will qualify you to do it. It's looking inward and then looking honestly and just being like, okay, what are your dreams? What are your goals? What are you going to need to get there? What skills are you going to need? Because that's really what it is in entertainment, especially from a creative perspective. Oh, for sure. The skills to do this job. If the answer is no, then right now your job is to get those skills. And that's the most fun part, in my opinion. That is the most fun part. I love learning about writing. I know. I don't even know if I like writing. I love learning about it. Tell me you brought up films. So I want to talk about films for a second for both of you. Tell me Lucasfilms calls. Black Panther does not yet exist. They want to build an entire new world from your book. Their movies have been Star Wars and, I don't know, Indiana Jones and now Children of Blood and Bone. Tell me about the first time you went to Lucasfilms and what that Well, that actually came about once Disney and Fox merged. So that was also a complete... In the sense that I guess there's so little in life that you're in control of. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which then goes back to the, oh, okay. Because again, I didn't know who was going to make the movie. You don't know the details. You just know my desire is that I would like to see this on screen. Yeah. And so then it goes back to, okay, let's study things that people also want to see on screen. Why do they want to see it on screen? Oh, they're cinematic. Oh, they're visual. Oh, it's like the pacing. I felt so tense the entire time. I was dehydrated by the time. The <laughs> you know, I'm just describing an ember in the ashes right now. Totally. <laughs> so by the time I got to Lucas, it was like, oh, what a cool universe there is a better word for that but oh how cool is it that this is now going to be a property for you to bring to life and something original to work on that has the heart of the stories you like to tell 
yeah. but from a completely new twist and angle. I really loved working with them because again, I just like passionate nerds. I that's know. it. That's our jam, right? The best people in the world are passionate nerds. Sounds like my parents. My parents were such nerds and they were so passionate. They're gone now, but God, I just love the combination of those two words makes me so happy. It's Um, the best. It's the best. Saba, you got word that Paramount had optioned your book. Where were you? Do you remember the moment? I do, but my moment was really funny because my brother, Haroon, is in the film industry. My experience with film rights and all that stuff was a little bit like I knew how the sausage was made. <laughs> so it wasn't as glitzy. It was more stressful. But at that time, I had no faith in the film industry in terms of them acknowledging that this was a book in which the main two characters were people of color. Yep. And that those were our heroes and that that's what the representation would need to be if there was a film, if there was a show, whatever. And so my brother, whom at the time, years ago, I wanted him to be attached and to be part of the process. And he has, Mm. even though actually the project has moved, and I can't talk about where, but it has moved and it's sort of changed forms and it's kind of very different from what it was initially, but it has more of my stamp on it. Nice. But the one constant through all of that has been my brother Haroon who now runs Day Zero, which is Trevor Noah's company, uh, his production company. Haroon has always seen what is so important to me about bringing Ember to life. And so I wanted to have the experience of that really deep excitement of, oh my God, it's been optioned. This is such a huge thing. And I was excited, but I also knew the unlikelihood (laughs) of anything (laughs) ever happening and how long the journey was going to be. I knew that very intimately. So you knew too much. <laughs> I knew too much. I knew too yeah. much. Upon reflection, I think that's okay. It kind of helped me deal with yeah. the disappointments that come along the way. Yep. Where it's like, oh, you know, this isn't going to work, or someone adapted it, and you read it, and you're like, this is not what I was hoping for. And then, what are the next steps? How do yeah. we bring something to life if other attempts have sort of not been what we hope? How do you reimagine something? But it's also been very educational, which I appreciate. What you raise, though, sub is important, especially for the listeners of this podcast. Because if I go all the way back to when CBB was optioned, I actually wasn't in fairy tale mode either. It's fairy tale mode until it looks like the car is about to hit the road. <laughs> and then it's like Olivia Pope. Again, you know, life is an affair. We write enough stories to know how these things happen and we've suffered through enough both horrible adaptations and I actually wish you hadn't done this attempts at inclusion and diversity. Whether you know the details of it or whether you've just been a consumer of things that have gone horribly wrong, (laughs) your guard should be up because it's going from you to a whole team of people. And so for me, it was, okay, what are the things I need? Involvement. Okay, no color washing, no whitewashing. It's like I have a list of terms and conditions because you only have control over who you say yes to work to. Mm -hmm. After that, your hand's not the only hand on the driving wheel, even if it's on the steering wheel at all. I don't know if that's because of our knowledge. I don't know if it's because of our personalities, or I don't know if it's because of the backgrounds of these stories, but 
it's very less fairy tale and more like, how do I make sure this is done? How do I get Atlanta and not something else? There's so much power too, Tommy, and we've discussed this. There's so much power in saying that unless this is done in the way that it needs to be done to appropriately represent the soul of the story that I have told, I am not willing to do it. And that is, I think, something both of us were like, it's not going to happen unless it's done right. I remember sharing that with you and you kind of being like, yes, that's exactly how I feel. We kind of bonded over that very early on in your journey because we've seen it. I think about the conversation that I had a long time ago with Jenny Han, who wrote to all the boys I've loved before and her struggles in getting Asians cast in the adaptation of that and how there were so many versions or so many attempts to just let us whitewash this. And she was like, no, I will not let you do that. That's such a power move by her to say that that is not what this story is. And I refuse. And then you think about how wildly successful to all the boys was. Yes. Mm -hmm. And a huge part of that was Jenny Han sticking to her guns and saying, I refuse to let you make this into something it's not. Both Tomi and I have also tried to stay true to that ideology. I think you've done really well with it. And actually, that leads to a question that I've been wondering about both of you. Years ago, I consulted on a project called The Wealthy Spirit by Shelley Campbell, who's a financial writer. She treats money disorders, spending bulimia and income anorexia. And she's found that people often have money issues because they don't feel worthy of receiving abundance. Yeah. The two of you have received amazing advances and you've done so well commercially. I wanted to ask you, was that a process of having to coach your own self? How did you believe in this? How did you step up? And is it a process that you're still working on? I needed to tell a story. Yeah. Because, <laughs> and this is where I like the universe. And this is why I do believe in magic, because I don't even know if I've told some of this, but there was a period when Children of Blood and Bone was out to different publishers. Yeah. Because choosing a publisher is as stressful and as important as trying to choose the right person to adapt a project with. Because again, if you're strong-willed, your hands are still on the steering wheel, but then like 12 other people jump into a four-seat car. Dude, I just did it. wants to play a different song. I just did it with agents. I just interviewed agents for a couple of weeks. And there were so many different things to consider points of view and different histories and experience at the different agencies with their strengths and their connections. Fortunately, I really, really knew who I wanted and you're dealing with people who you really care about. So it was still intense. It feels like a marriage. It feels like like having an arranged marriage and you're like, it is an arranged marriage. (laughs) Where it's like, all you get is like a little appetizer and you have no idea what the three course meal is. And so it's going to go really well and really horribly, almost always. But something crucial that Subba had told me when I was like, this is kind of what I'm in between. This is what I'm thinking. Can I pick your brain? Which I think going all the way back to the beginning is the point of a mentor. You can learn all the general, but sometimes you're going to be in a very specific situation. And that's when it's like, it'd really be helpful if you could apply your expertise and wisdom to my very specific situation. So that was a moment for me with Saba. Something she said that unlocked the beast was, it was at the end of a call. It was almost a two-hour call. She's like, Tommy. And I was like, yeah. 
And she goes, make them pay. (gasps) (laughs) I remember viscerally that was the unlock button. And now that I have a career, I still find myself repeatedly activated, turning off those switches and turning off those notches. Because again, we come from such a beggar's mentality as struggling artists, as women, as marginal. You're always like, I'm just lucky to breathe this air. But no, I don't think I'm lucky to make you a lot of money. You have to get aggressive, even if you're only allowed to express that aggression internally, because otherwise it doesn't go well. You can't create something like Beyonce if you're not willing to roar when you need to roar. If you're not going to say, and where's my equity? You have to be ferocious and you have to believe that all of it is yours and that you're worthy of it. I listen to a lot of Beyonce and a lot of Cardi B. You know, I like (laughs) the you're fucking worth it. I pump it into my veins because the entire world and the entire society is screaming the opposite. And you're only human. If you hear it enough, if you're raised in it enough, if you literally become an adult with a beggar's mentality, it takes so much, but... The journey started with Subba, so. Aw, thanks, Tomi. Thank you. (laughs) I think it's something you see a lot in immigrant communities. At least I know in my immigrant community, the feeling of, I don't deserve it. And if I get it, it's because of the will of God, which I'm not arguing with, you know? Um, But I do feel that's a lesson I had to learn over time. And I actually think that it was... (laughs) I have two older brothers and I feel like a lot of men kind of walk in this world differently than women do, right? Both my two older brothers and then also my husband were all kind of like, well, why wouldn't you get? They were just so, and they're men of color. So they've dealt with their own situations and issues and being marginalized. But they were just like, how could you not expect to produce something that you tore out of the bedrock of your soul and put into the world. And why wouldn't you get paid well for that? Yeah. And to me, it was kind of an awakening. And it's super annoying that it was, you know, dudes who who kind of helped me have that awakening. But it's something I try to tell young writers, whether they're asking me for advice, or we're just talking at an event or whatever. It's something that I try to emphasize, which is you have to know your worth, and you have to believe in your worth. Ember was not a series when we sold it. We sold one book. And I knew it was a series in my head. I had pitched it as a series. I even laid out for the publisher what the other three books were going to be. But because we were asking for a lot of compensation, it was just like, well, we can only do one book. And I remember very clearly, I asked my agent, do you think that they'll buy the other ones? And she was like, it doesn't matter what I think. What do you think? Do you believe? And I had to ask myself, like, do I believe Whoa. in the story? Do I believe in what I've written? Do I believe in the message? Do I believe in this thing that I've poured my soul into for six years? Do I believe in the stories of these people who are going through the worst things possible and that those stories deserve to be told in a way that is accessible to young readers? Do I believe in that? And the answer and to that question ultimately was yes. And do I believe in myself? Do I believe I can tell that story? Yeah. And even though. I've never really sat around being like, I have amazing self-esteem. I've always kind of been very self-deprecating and all of those things. 
in that moment, I had to dig deep and be like, I would not have spent six years on this thing if I didn't believe. I absolutely believe. And that was it. That makes me so happy. That is so badass. And think of it. (laughs) One of my really good friends who I've met through this process, we're both New York Times bestselling authors who started our New York Times bestselling books after reading An Ember in the Ashes. Oh. And we're just the authors. The social, societal impact. Oh, yeah. Is endless. We're either creating ripples of good or ripples of bad. And you don't have control. They're all going to knock into each other. All the Jenga pieces are going to fall to the ground. (laughs) And so it's crazy to think that Saba having her own internal battle with like Mordor then leads to these battles. And one day you're going to be talking to two authors who are like, well, we read these books and we wanted to write so well. And you know, it just keeps going. (laughs) No, it does. And I think about like Ursula Le Guin or the authors who inspired me or the authors who inspired her. And one of the moments that I loved in the writing journey was I was at a book event and told me this was after CBB had come out, but before Virtue and Vengeance. And I was doing a tour and this young woman walks up and she said, I read your book because of Tomi Adeyemi. And I was like, really? That's awesome. And she said, I read Children of Blood and Bone. It's the first book that I really wanted to finish or been interested in in years. And so I drew this picture and she'd drawn this picture of Laya, who's the main character in my book, and Zelly. Yes, together. They're hugging and they're hugging. Yes. The sweetest, the most beautiful thing. And I was like, I can't believe this art exists because of these two books. Like, wow, how cool. What a great moment. It also comes back in sort of weird ways that you don't expect where I have so many readers who have come to me because of Tomi, because she'll talk Mm -hmm. about Ember. Because I think that Children of Blood and Bone was very much a book that a lot of people who had not read fantasy or hadn't picked it up in a while, they picked up that book and they were like, wow, this is amazing. And so then her saying, hey, this was one of my inspirations made them be like, oh, maybe there's other fantasies I might like. Yeah, And that exactly. too is kind of magical. And I think both of you with this immigrant history and experience, being black and brown children in this society, you're so often dehumanized. You so often feel that you don't fit in or you're victimized. You look different. You sound different. You eat different foods, whatever. And I think there's such power... For Saba, you were saying somewhere I heard you talking about how in Pakistan now there are brown girls who can see themselves as the hero, whereas before they couldn't. I hear a lot from girls specifically in Pakistan and India a lot too, actually, Mm -hmm. saying, hey, this is the first time I've seen myself on a book. My niece, one of the big moments for me, my niece is Afghani and Pakistani. And when I first sent the new cover of Ember, because the original cover was different and the new one has a brown girl on it looking very brave and beautiful, I sent it to my brother and my sister-in-law and it came in the house. My sister-in-law set it on the table and my niece walked over. Oh my and God. my sister-in-law said, you know, Sava, she was staring at it for like a good couple of minutes and I wanted to say something, but I just didn't. I left it alone. I let her come to me and she yeah. came to me and she said, Mama, she looks like me. And it was like, That's my blood. And it's the first time she had seen herself. And it was such a beautiful moment. And how many people have felt that way, you know, have felt unseen. And then when they see 
Children of Blood and Bone, or they see The Bells by Danielle yeah. Clayton, or they see Legendborn by Tracy Dion, or they see any of these, they see Ember. How many of them are like, oh, the hero is, is me. I'm the hero. That's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And we need so much more of that. <laughs> <laughs> I totally agree. Okay. I do this thing. It's a little rapid fire. So just real quick, I want to know your top COVID coping mechanism. Go. Ooh, puppy. Chocolate. <laughs> I know you're not supposed to blindly advocate puppy because there's also a concern that no. a lot of people are getting puppies now and then post-COVID, they're going to be on the street. Yeah. So have the long-term plan for the puppy, but definitely yeah. having something that doesn't understand there's a global pandemic totally. everywhere helps you not focus on that all the time. Okay, Snape or Voldemort? Uh, Snape. Totally Snape. Snape's human. Voldemort's very flat. He's yep. vanilla, but he's like, I don't want to choose either of Dean Thomas. <laughs> Dean Thomas. I know, right? Parvati Patel. <laughs> Best thing about writing a sequel? Oh. It's over? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did not have one positive thing. <laughs> Well, wait a minute. There's a positive. You can write a more complicated story. You have readers that actually give a shit and will buy it. It wasn't just a fluke, or maybe that's actually the fear of writing it. Like, what I if it is a fluke? Over. I right. The best part was when it was over, I finally felt like I had done enough where I could now write the way I wanted to write. What? And that felt really, really good of like, okay, I can sleep and oh. do this job. I felt like okay. I kept writing myself into corners, Tommy. So like I finished Torch and I was like, oh God, I don't know how to get out of that. Then I finished Roof and I was like, oh man, I don't know how to get out of that. So- <laughs> <laughs> Who told me that? A thriller writer told me that. Lee Child. He said, oh, yeah. He, yeah, he said, he said, sometimes he just writes and he's like, damn, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get out of this. And he said, it's like a high flying act. It is. All right. Worst thing about writing a sequel? Everything. Everything. <laughs> They're awful. They're awful. Yeah, it's like, I'm not exaggerating. There's not one There's positive nothing. thing because even when you're doing it the first time, again, you don't know what you don't know. It's exploration. Yeah. And the second time you do know what you don't know and you're asked to do it in like a third of the time Yay. with 12 other people. And you're supposed to know you. what you're doing. You're supposed and to, you're you're supposed you're to be marketing your first book. So not only do you have less time quantitatively to do it, you literally have less physical time. Got so it. yeah, oh, no problem. And you're also like aware of all the things that could go wrong so that when it starts to happen, you're not like blissfully ignorant being like, oh, it'll be fine. You're like, oh God. This is is going badly. (laughs) That's not fun. Which one of you has had a really close friend not read your book? My brother hasn't finished my book. (laughs) I like prefer it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to need to have a chat with Toby. That's not good. I personally love the separation between life and job. Agreed. Because it's weird when your friend's like, can you sign this? And it's like, I've seen you naked. So no. Oh, dude, dude, my husband of 19 years, we break up and I go on match.com and somehow the guys that I was talking to had looked me up or found me or whatever, and they're reading my stuff. And there were a couple of like blind dates. People told them what I did and, and they were all smitten with me because of my writing, not because of me as a person. And then I find they just want to write books and you're like, oh, no. never mind. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay with someone being smitten because of my <laughs> but there's no separate yeah we have the best of it because we're not musicians 
Yeah. But yeah. I think it's nice to be like, yeah, because whenever people start asking lots of things and I'm just like, this is what I do for my job. Yeah. Like shut and up so and don't just ask me anything you wouldn't ask an accountant. Right? You always <laughs> tell people what you do, Tommy, because I actually... Oh, God, no. Like, oh, none I of my neighbors know do. what I do. God, yeah. No. Oh, my old neighborhood knew, but my new neighborhood, they have no idea what I do. And I feel bad, but I've like straight up lied to cab drivers. I'm like, I work for the oh. IRS. And oh, then the sure. conversation is over and it's great. <laughs> <laughs> when I was experimenting with dating Linda, I just told people I was a publicist. Because yeah. I was like, you need a backstory. You need some way sure, sure. by your extensive <laughs> knowledge of young adult literature. <laughs> but it's like, you know, they'd be like, oh yeah, this book's coming out. And then I'm curious with you guys too. For me, the person who writes is different. It's not a fugue state, but it's like the Tommy who comes out to write a book does not leave the office. Maybe it's more like a demon. you know like if I'm not writing it it doesn't exist almost to the point of me literally not remembering oh I did that because the conscious I guess honestly maybe it's my subconscious yeah but my conscious self doesn't write I know what you're talking about Seba you did a penguin teen video where you had to do a quick wrap-up of all your titles and you just rambled for minutes about your whole storyline. And I was thinking, yeah. there's not a chance in hell I could summarize my story like that because I have a different writing head than I have a speaking head. My writing person is way smarter than my speaking person. Yeah. <laughs> I have a really hard time separating. I actually think it's partially because I'm at home with my kids a lot and I write, I have to write. Yeah. When they're around, I don't have a choice. That's the only time sometimes I can get stuff done. And so it's very much like, oh my God, did you finish your homework? And can you please set the table? And then I'm also like doing a battle scene. Um, And (laughs) then I go back and I think that that's made it so that it's kind of my constant state of being. But I will say, my kids can always tell when I'm not there. So they'll kind of walk up to me and they'll be like, mama, 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 you know, and then I'll be, you know, and I might not even be at the keyboard. I might just be staring off into space and they just know. My oldest son has said to me before, he's like, you have that look on your face like you're about to kill someone in your book. And it's like, he just knows. (laughs) Terry McMillan had the best line on a show we did recently. And she was talking about with her ex-husband. She said, when I open that door, if I don't look at you, don't fucking talk to me. <laughs> I, I remember hearing that. That was great. Yeah. Do you both see your books cinematically in your mind? I do. Yeah. I see everything. I hear the music. Do you hear the music, Tony? I feel like you do. Because I hear the music in my book. getting ready. It's like every day of my life is like Rocky. You know, it's got to be. We're all just here for fine. So you should be like, but I'm And you're like, brush your teeth. And you're like, I'm going to get this fucking thing. I'm going to punch it so hard. I'm going to accomplish my. Every day to me should feel a little bit epic because you exist and the nature of existing is epic. You know, oh like, my God. it's because we see it so much in our head. I always say, I need to feel it 200% to even hope my readers can feel it 50%. You have to assume every time it leaves your imagination, it's less. You want it to be so clear in your imagination that even the most stripped down version of it is this 
epic cinematic experience because then the reader gets to watch it in their imagination. Wow. Do you smell it? Do you hear it? Is it all encompassing? Yeah, right. It's every sense. Really? Yeah. It's that you're you're living in that world. Otherwise, like how can you feel the fear? I think about that a lot with our books specifically because they're like super stressful. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Very stressful books, right? Totally. And so if you can't live in those moments of extreme emotion, if we ourselves can't do that as writers, I think Tony's 100% right that we have to pour so much of ourselves onto the page that if even a little of that comes through, it's like a punch. Oh, yeah. That's how I want it to feel. I want my readers to feel like they've been through an experience. <laughs> Okay, okay, so so as a reader of both of you, I go through a lot when I read your books. And I have to, I have to effing rest up when I am done. I take a break before I start the next one. I regroup. I allow myself to grieve and to be pissed and to celebrate and to feel all the feels. So do you guys have to heal and regroup after you bring these babies through? You must have way more healing to do than I do as the reader. I had so much healing to do after writing my third book that I actually wrote an entirely different book in an entirely different genre before I could come back to the world of Ember. That's how much healing I had to do. Wow. Yeah. The big reason I'm in such a good place right now is because I have spent a significant amount of time healing because there was a lot of sustained damage (laughs) emotionally, creatively, mentally, and physically after pumping out the first two books. Oh, yeah. The older I get, the more parallels I'm seeing between all the people that I admire from any capacity. I recently watched The Last Dance. And so looking at Michael Jordan going to baseball in between the championships after losing his father, and then you get the internal monologue that you didn't have back then of, I had never played a game without him. And I wasn't ready to do that. And so you're like, okay, yeah, it makes sense that you're like, I'm still athletic. I still need to compete, but I am not in a place to be able to do that on this floor yet. I am sure my readers will feel the biggest difference between book two and book three. Yeah. Book two, I was struggling a lot just in life, but from a creative perspective, I couldn't figure out what Zaylee needed because I didn't know what I needed. I can't wait to find yeah. out what Zayn needed. You left oh, yeah. us so hanging. I'm like, what the hell does she need? I do not know. I do not know, but you I need to find out because I need I to know. know. Oh my God, I need to know. Okay, best excuse you've ever had for being late on a deadline? Deadlines are suggestions. Again, both books were written so acceleratedly. That there's never an excuse. And they're like, oh, it turns out 600 pages takes a long time to write. <laughs> I think COVID was a great excuse. Great excuse. Oh, nice. I was like, what are you going to say? What can you possibly say to me that will allow you to convince me that a worldwide pandemic is not a good excuse for turning in my book late? And there wasn't anything. Right? Because you're homeschooling two kids. I'm homeschooling two kids. I'm like, what do you want? What? I don't know. Where do you want me to put them? Do you want them to write the book? I mean, they could do it, but I don't know if it'd be any good. But I do think that creative excuses are a lot of fun. But I generally... I'm one of those people who gets very nervous if I'm approaching deadline and I'm not even close. And so usually well before, I will send the 
hey, I'm probably not going to hit this deadline. Yep. Yep. Okay, finish this one. I want to die when? I watch debates. I mean... Oh, mother (laughs) of God. Last night was painful, you guys. I felt like I was in a room with an abusive... Yeah, that was bad. At like 15 minutes in, I turned it off and it was just like my husband and I were just silent. We were like, wow, that was painful. That That was was painful. That actually hurt. Yeah. Both of your storytelling is epic. You're creating worlds, movies that are going to touch millions of people, complex characters, big stories, big magic. You don't write like that, I'm imagining, unless you have a deeper desire with changing the world. Your stories are changing the world. They are changing people's lives. And I remember being a little kid and wanting to change the world through the environment. I decided it was up to me. I was going to do it. And here I am still writing about the environment 50 years later. So talk to me about that mission. What's that look like or feel like? I'm curious, tell me what your answer is going to be, but I think it's tied to me for writing for kids. The books I read as a teenager were the most influential of my life because that is when my personality was really still being formed. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember so many of the books I read and loved as a teenager because they actually impacted my life. Whereas as an adult, I don't remember quite as much because it's like I enjoy it. I immerse myself in it. But it's really harder for me to find books that change my life. And so many of my readers have grown up with my books and they've gone from 15 to 20. And what I kind of hear over and over is, you know, your books changed me. And I think the reason for that is that a lot of teenagers don't have any power. They see these massive forces around them moving, changing things, not always for the better, but they might feel powerless. I know I did. So they have very little control over their own lives, even though they are achieving this level of individuality and personhood that they've never had. Maybe they want to march and their parents won't let them. Maybe they want to date someone and their family's like, no. Mm. Maybe they want to just talk to someone like them who understands what they're experiencing, but they can't do that either. But you know what they can do? The door that they do have is books. Mm. If they have access to a library or a phone, they can get access to books. And that lets them expand their world in a way that they might not get otherwise. That was me as a kid. So it's sort of trite to say that I write for teens because they're the future. But I write for teens and I write to change the world because I know how important that part of life is. And I know the way adults look down on it. Teens are maligned. And like, there's always this older generation just shitting on the last one. And I assume it's because they just want to feel more relevant, right? You You see it all the time in these think pieces that will trash young adult books. There's one every year and the author always thinks that they're saying something earth shattering. And it's just a snooze fest. It's like... It's like the Netflix. Why do you have to trash teenagers, particularly teenage girls, and the things that they love? Mm. These are the movers and shakers. They are going to change things. They've already changed things. Malala. Oh, God. That's a perfect example of a teenager who has changed so much. I might have a few Pakistani kids in Pakistan who write me and say, hey, thanks for your books. But Malala is a force. A force. So for me, writing and changing the world is very much tied to who I write for. That's beautiful. Wow. I'm thinking about Abidari's Girl with the Louding Voice. That book was so powerful for me. I was going through something in my personal life where I didn't feel like I had a voice. I didn't feel like I could be honest. And just reading about that teenager who was so victimized and then came through and by the end had such a strong and powerful voice, I felt the way you were just talking about, Seba. I felt like I was a teenager and I was growing new vocal cords. How are you, Tommy? With the young adult too, my mind always goes through several different things. 
And it's usually the Harry Potter houses, which I know is controversial, but I still feel the same way I did when I was 16. Mm. I was like, my head, my brain works faster. I have like an updated iOS software. Yeah. But the emotions, there just seems to be the switch. I think from the Hufflepuff side, it's like my inner child is very alive. And now she's like, I got adult money. I can't eat all the jelly beans I want, but I'm going to get a dog, you know? And so personally, I relate very much to them emotionally because I'm like, okay, you can't have that many jelly beans because of root canals and not because of your parents. But everything else, let's try and figure that out a little bit. But I also think young adult literature is so emotional. So it appeals to the inner child. My oldest readers are in their 80s. Well, yeah, it makes you feel alive. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And I think adult books, they're usually centered on intrigue. Like Mm -hmm. when I'm reading or watching Big Little Lies, I want to know who died and why. Right. I actually care what happens to any of the characters. I don't care about them as people. Nope. When I'm reading In Ember in the Ashes, I'm literally like, oh my God, is I going to get out of this? Okay. I'm like, is Darren going to be alive at the end? Like, did they kill him? Did they kill him? They're real. You'll have a majority young audience, but also really a global audience because our most popular stories of our society are young adult. Writing children of one and bone, the thing I wanted to explore and portray was the inner emotional PTSD from constantly consuming all of these headlines of police brutality. Mm. Oh, yeah. We were not designed to go on the internet and watch people murder other people. We were not designed for that. We were not designed to have footage of that, let alone that footage beamed into our timelines all the time. I don't spend a lot of time on social media. And in one hand, you lose the constant connectivity. But then again, we also weren't designed to be constant. Because you know what? People hated you before. You just didn't know. (laughs) And you know what? If you're not going to sit outside my door and scream that you hate me and hate people like me, I actually am okay. Because then it's a problem. But if you're just on the internet screaming, I probably don't like you either. So it's okay. Let's just agree to stay away. Mm -hmm. With the book, I wanted people to feel how afraid you are all the time. Because every time you see a headline, it's not like, oh, that wasn't me. It's like, oh, that could have been me. That could have been my mom. That could have been my dad. Every name, you think of all the names it could have been and it messes with you. And I realized not only was that not being talked about in the public forum, I found even with other Black people, we were never talking about, hey, do you ever get a panic attack inside your car because you're scared you're going to be pulled over and shot? Is it ever hard for you? to go to the grocery store and get the jelly beans you know you're not supposed to be eating because Mm. you don't want to die. I was having that, but no one was talking about it. And it's probably because it's one of those things you don't want to talk about. No one really wants to talk about their trauma. There's not many forms for you to have a conversation about what's Mm -hmm. going on in the world and all the different traumas in a calm manner. And most of the time, it's not even a conversation. It's just a bunch of people screaming on the internet. What's interesting about the way that the two of you write, every bad guy in both of your books, there's a backstory. They're not Voldemort. Their motivations become clear. Their humanity always at some point shines through, even in the tiniest way. 
they were either ripped away from their families and forced to become child soldiers or wear masks. And now they're just trying to fight to stay alive. If they don't kill, they will be killed. So we understand that behind all the villains, there's pain and there's a reason and there's some kind of humanity, almost always. (laughs) But then I look at our world now and I'm like, I want to have understanding and I want to have compassion and empathy for people, but sometimes I just want to kill them. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, everyone totally wants fair. that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Which is what I it's learned. Like, um, like, that's what quarantine taught me. Oh, it's actually not personal. We all hate each other. <laughs> yeah. And- Growing up, I had to see the humanity in the villains in my world because uh, if I didn't, I would have gone crazy. Yep. And I think that's why so many people are struggling now. For a long time, we did try to see the humanity. Totally. When your villain doesn't see your humanity, that's when it becomes very, very hard to extend them that grace. And for what it's worth, I still try to do it. There are exceptions. (laughs) But I definitely still try to extend that because you don't know anyone's story. And so often, anytime, I feel like the universe like loves to slap me down. So anytime (laughs) I have like judged someone and been like, oh, that person sucks. Like 40 seconds later, it turns out that I was completely wrong. It takes me back to journalism and to reading these stories about all these things that happen in the world. And so many stories that we read from around the world about wars or bombings or jailings or whatever, there are children scattered all through those stories. Always, We don't really think about it, right? I think about what has happened in Syria these past six, seven years. What is happening in Kashmir? right now. The things that these children are witnessing is what is going to shape them often, not always, but often as adults. It's a reminder that there is a human somewhere in there and that there's also a line that people cross. And that's the point at which you can't really see them as that child anymore. I've become a lot more binary in my life because I believe every strength is a weakness. I try and be very analytical when assessing myself and being like, okay, what's great about you and what's weak about you? How does this thing that's great about you make you vulnerable? How does this thing that's weak about you actually help you in certain situations? For me, I know a benefit is an open heart, but then that's also vulnerability in a world. We don't live in a Pokemon world. All the doors aren't open. You can't just sleep in other people's beds when you get tired. You know, it's, (laughs) <laughs> there is a fine line between understanding that there is malevolence in this world mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that there is malevolence in power. And sometimes it's not someone who's being misunderstood. Yeah, sometimes and they're just evil. Our, yes, there are enemies. Or sometimes it's just someone who doesn't want the best for you. Underneath that, everyone is suffering. Yeah. I have a group call with writers every two weeks and always start with, how are you? And it's basically, we're all suffering. And I'm like, oh, look, we're all suffering and we made it. Let's celebrate because we persevered. I can forgive if you're suffering, but if you are someone who suffers and then inflicts suffering on other people, you're not in my Jeep, essentially. I love that. I don't think people should be the emotional punching bag. There's always this sense of, oh, it's up to you, the victimer, to humanize and understand your abuser so you can then explain them. That's horseshit to me. Not that people should be understood, but I was not put on this earth to educate you about 
racism, especially when there's the internet and you can literally Google. Don't talk things me. up. Yeah. You just realized I was black. <laughs> I was black uh, well, my entire life. And you need to be able to be your own biggest defender when it comes mm-hmm. to your heart and your mind and your time and your energy. Is this good investment of time? Is this good investment of energy? Are you okay? Do you need to rest so your immune system isn't too low? Simply looking at life through this lens, I have been more at peace than I've been in my entire life. Because again, I'm not looking at the world or the internet as everyone who's an energy. Oh, you don't like Black people? That is definitely not a good source of my energy. (laughs) Yeah. You put on these horse blinders and you start realizing that you have to fight ferociously for yourself. And sometimes that fight is going to be right at your doorstep and you are going to need to pick up your shield and you are going to need to pick up your sword. But the vast majority of the time, it's not at your doorstep. I love how Seba said that villains are still the hero of their own stories. And both of you love getting into the backstory of your villains to know what they've gone through and how they got where they are. And I love how both in your personal life and even in your books, it's like, and that doesn't give you an excuse to be an asshole. Yeah. (laughs) And it hurt others. Because a lot of people use the fact that they've suffered as rationale for hurting others. But we've all suffered. Everybody. I think you both are leaving a real legacy. I've heard you talk, and I think it was actually together, about racism and how we're moving in the right direction. But to counteract centuries of racism, we've got to fight for decades and maybe even centuries. I look at your characters and the worlds that you've created, and I see them as part of the resistance. Definitely. Yeah, I I think that they are. It is our way, I think, again, of trying to speak truth into the world as we see it. And we are voices. Our voices are not voices that have often been heard. But I believe they are voices that need to be heard. And the hope, of course, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, Tommy, but the hope for me is definitely that the story lives and lives for a long time. Not because I want there to be refugees for a long time, not because I want there to be war for a long time, but because I hope people feel the need to look at things differently. You were talking about this idea of the villain being the hero of their own story. And while I absolutely think there are places where we should put our foot down and say that person is just evil, I also think we as a country need to think about who do we classify as evil? If you are looking at the person in Pakistan who had their village bombed for no particular reason and then gets really angry and frustrated and hurt and decides that they are going to join the fight against their oppressor, that we might classify that as evil. But if we look deeper, what would we do? What would we yeah. do what in that situation, what did right? Like, we do? What did we, we do? And we said, exactly. let's go to fucking war. And we so said, let's go to like- war. And in addition to looking at things like why do people do the things they do, et cetera, I think we also have to ask the question of what is the context that we're looking at? Are we looking at an oppressed person? Are we looking at a person who was hunted? Again, doesn't excuse what people do. I think it just helps us have a better understanding yeah. of the world that we live in. Yeah. Yeah. Two writing questions before we leave. I want to talk about schooling. Tell me, how did being an English lit major help your writing? I want to say, uh, 
like 2020 and I used to be like super sweet but at this point I'm like I'm just trying to stay alive (laughs) I don't really have the extra reserves and sugar coated the biggest way it helped I had great teachers but I also I applied for a fiction writing class five semesters in a row so over two and a half years got rejected every time what when I finally went to ask the teacher why he was rejecting me he pointed a bunch of superficial, <gasps> grammatical, copy edit level things. And then I was like, okay, is there any feedback to the content since this has all been service level? And he was like, well, if you're making these mistakes, I can't teach you how to write. And I was like, oh, okay. So that's what I say. Wow. Was that at Harvard? Writing. Where was that? Harvard. My advice is I tell my writers to live for your hair flip moment. Every time someone says <laughs> something out of pocket in left field, and especially if you're marginalized, it's going to happen out of nowhere. You'll be like, I was asking you a question and I'm basically 12 years old. So it's a thing. It's just like, did I learn to write there? No. Did I become angry enough to sustain the passion and perseverance and intensity you would need to kind of cross that threshold? Definitely. I will also get emails being like, oh my God, do I have to study English literature at Harvard to do this? I didn't learn to write at Harvard. I learned to write on my own. I was actually told I was a bad writer at Harvard, that I had no future (gasps) at writing at Harvard, which is the point. Someone in high school told me I was going to work the fryer at McDonald's. (sighs) I say these things to tell people don't know shit. I don't want to swear in this podcast. But again, it's more of... You decide what you're going to learn. You decide what you're going to be and then do it. And if you have to do it in spite of things, that's even better. (laughs) Yeah. Then you have fuel. I love you. Yeah. Everything I learned about writing was at my parents' businesses. I learned about writing at the motel and all the people coming through. I learned about writing while working at a gas station, which people, they talk trash about working at a gas station at the service jobs, but I found it very educational. I learned about all sorts of people people. working at a gas station. And I think that you cannot write well if you don't know people. Stephen King worked at a gas station. Our U.S. Poet Laureate Joy Harjo talked on this show about working at a gas station. I think that is the best thing you could have said is that you can't write well unless you know people. Brilliant. Yeah, I think it's just hard. Because again, as we're hearing from new writers in other spaces, because growing up, it was like, oh, you need to go to the specific program in Iowa in order to have right. education in writing. Right. And I was like, but I don't want to go to Iowa. And my Nigerian parents definitely aren't going to allow me to go. You know, it's like you're told it has to be like this to be like this. It has to be like this to be like this. You literally live with the Internet, which I don't think people understand because I half grew up with the Internet. And it's hard to remember the time before it existed. Yeah. It really is magic. You have all the answers at your right fingertips. There. It's amazing. So if you want it, Google it. Yeah. When I was your age, when you guys started writing, when I was early 20s, late teens, early 20s, I lived in the libraries. You know, librarians were my best friends. I had librarians on speed dial. I would call my elders and say, What was it like when you worked in a newsroom? Or what did it smell like when you went to India? Or what does it taste like to have food from Kenya? And now everything's at the tip of a finger. It's magic. And because it's magic, you don't appreciate it or you misuse it. I always tell my writing clients, go where the juice is. 
And I heard one of you say, I think it might have been Tommy, go where the fire is. Can you speak to that? Yeah. I think we come from the same sensibility of if you're a creative person, you tend to have a lot of ideas. (laughs) And then if you're writing a book, it's like suddenly this idea that was so cute and so fun and you guys were totally into each other. And then that (laughs) meme of the guy and you're like holding a book's hand and you look back and you're like, but that idea, which hasn't caused me any pain yet, looks (laughs) like it might be the one. So I think there's a fine line between chasing that fire and that spark and being disciplined and committed enough to wade through a story long after it's lost that spark. Yeah. And I think that it was the threshold between me writing and then me writing to become an author of, oh, it's not fun anymore and I have to keep doing it. Oh, that sounds like a job. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, I'm thinking about how when I first started writing where I was like, okay, I'm going to try to write a book. I was 21. I'm going to write a memoir about growing up in the desert. And you know, I was 21. I didn't know anything. And Mm -hmm. I'm writing this book or trying to, and I kept calling my mom and complaining. And finally, my mom, who was probably just really sick of me whining, was like, why don't you write a fantasy? You love fantasy. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I can't write a fantasy. No one would take me seriously. And she's like, who cares? She's like, no one's going to take you seriously if you never finish your book. And you know, immigrant moms, they just tell it to you like it is, right? There's no coddling. There's no coddling. So I started writing this fantasy book. And so I think write the thing that you love, write the thing that you can live in because you cannot finish a story if you can't live in that world. Mm. And if you can't immerse yourself in that world and let yourself dream about that place, find the joy too, right? So much of writing, especially online, is word count and edits. And did you hit this point? And I'm like, dream, people. Mm. Lose yourself in those daydreams and close your eyes and let yourself fantasize about being the hero in your story, whatever it might be, and let it fuel you. One last question. You're in your scene. You're feeling all the feels. It's super cinematic. You can hear it, smell it, taste it, the whole nine. How pissed are you when the UPS person rings the bell? That I actually take. I think that's the life part. And it might be even easier because I guess it's a thing. I don't know because I've only lived in my head, but I feel a lot. And I get the sense that we don't all feel a lot. I watch SZA a lot and I think about how it's like, oh, I love it because her songs are emotional and they're always a little messy. Yeah. And so you appreciate it because you're someone who's not living life in the lines. You're really pressing all the buttons you're running through all the spaces, you're coloring with all the colors. And if you color with all the colors, yeah, it's going to hurt sometimes and it's going to hurt a lot. But I don't know, for me, again, it's part of being in that writer Tommy brain and in the real Tommy brain, because it is a lot to feel so much all the time. Yeah. Sometimes it is nice to come out from being in a place where you think you're hanging somewhere and being tortured by the king of a magical land. And instead it's like, oh, yes, I can sign for that package. Oh, yeah, I kind of love it. Yeah, I kind of love those interruptions because I feel like it's this beautiful reminder that I ain't shit. I like that. I I do like that. It's the thing that makes me often work harder. 
when I'm really in my feels and I'm deep in there and then my son calls and he's like, is there any pizza left or did you finish it all? He has an accusatory <laughs> note in his voice. And yeah. I'm just reminded that I am just a person. Yep. To me, it's such a wonderful, great feeling because it's like, you know what? That is the thing that matters mm-hmm. right there. That person or you know, my mom calling me and yelling at me about something or my brothers being like, well, why did you do this very human, silly thing? I love that feeling because ultimately, I think it connects me deeper to the humanity of my characters too. And it takes me out of these moments. Because one of the things I think with writing these books is that sometimes you forget that it's not all bad. You can be going through awful things and your characters are still going to laugh and have crushes and fall in love and be really yes. annoyed with the person they love yes. and on all of these things. And I feel like those interruptions, those life interruptions, for me anyway, it is a great reminder of the actual rhythms of life, which are sort of nothing like what you see in a book. <laughs> is there anything else you want to say before we hang up to our listeners? Anything at all? I have one thing, which is, Find writing friends like Tomi. It is life-altering to have these people in your life who remind you of why you write, who help you focus on the good when things seem really difficult. Yeah. Whose work you can admire, whose work you can learn from. It Mm. is a gift. Go find your Tomi. That's so true. I can't say find mentors like that because that's only going to increase the DMs and it's going to negate everything I said before. But Something I have found to be true, they always say, don't meet your heroes. But I found it's a little bit different with a book. I don't know. I might just be lucky. I will just (laughs) say it always starts alone in your room and it always feels bad. So if you can look at every book on your shelf, if you can look at us, just really look and be like, okay, I'm doing it right. And this is something I told some students a couple of weeks ago, if you have a goal and a dream and you are doing anything about it, that makes you the hero in your own life. Oh, yeah. And that okay. is, that's not automatic. So be the hero in your own life and go for it because you're here, you're alive and you exist. And so you might as well do it. Okay. Perfect ending. Perfect. I don't even know what to say. You guys are amazing. I need a cigarette. I need a nap. (laughs) This has been freaking awesome. I feel like I'm 10 years younger. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is fantastic. It was so fun. So fun. I've really been enjoying the podcast, by the way. Um, Have you? Yeah, I was listening to it and I listened to a lot of podcasts and most of them, you know, I enjoy them, but this one made me, it's going to sound really odd. This one actually made me feel less alone. Like I Aww. felt like I was in a room with you guys, which was really nice. Right, <laughs> so, right. Well, and I also love that you go to Carmel because that's also my retreat spot. Is it? I go every year. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> every year. Oh my gosh. It's my absolute favorite place to create. I was just in Carmel while editing this episode. I was hosting a small writing retreat while the weather was still beautiful enough to read and brainstorm and feast under the sun and stars. But with temps about to fall, I'm not sure I'm going to be headed back soon. The travel ban was actually really good for my writing this year. I got a ton done. And I'm a connector and a collaborator who needs to connect and collaborate. 
So I'm opening up my calendar this fall for a limited number of one-on-one brainstorming sessions. They're so much fun. If you've been feeling blocked and need another set of eyes or someone to listen as you ramble, I am here for you with my gut instincts and decades of experience for straight talk and cheerleading. For info on these 90-minute sessions, plus deets on my first and maybe last, I don't know, we'll see, virtual retreat in November, which includes introductions to agents when you're ready, go to the work with me tab at bookmama.com. And if you're writing fiction, do you know who else can give you killer writing support? Yeah, Tomi and Seba. You heard Tomi mention Seba's Skillshare course, where she gives incredible content, like how she creates compelling characters. Find out more at Skillshare.com. Tomi has a Writer's Roadmap course, a deep dive resource if you've been struggling to turn your story idea into a full-fledged novel. Aspiring writers, this is where your struggle ends. Go to thewritersroadmap.net. Big thanks to Kevin Baker at Red Room Sound, as always, and Julia McPherson of Inner Space Marketing for our beautiful images. And if today's episode inspired you in any way, I would so appreciate if you could leave us your five stars or love note on iTunes or wherever you listen. It helps other beautiful writers find us. Oh, and Seba, in light of your earlier concerns, I wouldn't want you to feel cursed for all my glowing positivity. So remember this, your shoes, yeah, they're ugly. (laughs) Until next time, write on. (laughs) 